0: Donna Lorenzo. And this is the Pop Style Opinion Fest. Hello, kittens. Welcome back to another edition of the PSO. I am the T-N-U-T-L-O, Tom Fitzgerald. And I'm here with the and L-O-N-U-T-L-O, Lorenzo Marquez, my lovely husband. Hello. We are surrounded by cats, and they yeah. are ready to start their vocal exercises Hopefully for the day. Not. Um, How are you doing, Lorenzo? Wonderful. Kittens, we took last week off because yes. uh, it, we were heading into a holiday weekend here in America, and just in our... Um, experience. No one's downloading podcasts right. during a weekend like that.
1: And we haven't done We hadn't done anything. Well, that's just it. Gone out, anything.
0: We, we were, we really just wanted to take the weekend for ourselves. And there's, you know, pop culture is at a real stall at the moment. We're waiting for the summer movie uh, season to kick in and see how that goes in terms of how much red carpets are coming back. And um, anyway, That's where we are right now. Um, Right. We just went out, did family stuff. and Saw family members. Yes. Got outside the confines of our city. It was nice. Went out to dinner at a really nice restaurant. um, And we were both laid out for two days afterwards. And the funny thing is, I don't think the food was heavy. Mm -hmm. Uh, We went to a Lebanese restaurant here in Philadelphia called Soraya. Um, That's our favorite place. But... It was so rich. It was so flavorful. And we were just knocked. We, right. You know, my cooking isn't like it, that. I know Lorenzo of... loves to brag that his husband can cook, but I am not a chef yes, can cook. by any stretch of the imagination. Anyway, go ahead.
1: No, it was just, I guess getting back to everything, like going out and, and talking to people and, and meeting people like your, your, your friend, your best friend came over. Right. And it was funny because we were talking, have this wonderful conversation, but after a while I was like, all right, I think I'm exhausted. <laughs> like, you're just tired of like no. that interaction that you're not used to anymore. Uh, at least I wasn't, um, you know, you kind of like going back to it and we went to your sister's house and it, it, it sounds ridiculous, but it's true. We, she has this great backyard and I'm like, Oh, grass green. You know air, flowers, yeah, we when you live in an apartment, you know it's a wonderful apartment, but it's still an apartment we don't have an outside area, so it, it yeah, I went out for a walk yesterday, I had to go to the vet, pick up some stuff, and I'm walking around and I'm looking at flowers and trees and you know smelling the air, <laughs> it's just yeah. It's an experience, a new experience for me, at least.
0: It's a happy experience. It is. I don't think I have happy. found it as overwhelming as you have. I have been primed to get the hell out. And it, I, it sounds like right. I'm the extrovert here, but I'm actually not. Um, But I haven't found any of it all that difficult. If anything, it's been notable how quickly everything just felt normal, um, right. including being in a restaurant.
1: Yeah, the thing with me is I can I can be very active, but I can be very lazy, too. And if, and if the circumstance you know, sort of like make me be lazy, then now we I'll be very, very lazy, stay home, do nothing, you know, that right. kind of thing.
0: Um, So that's us. That's really what's been going on in our week, which is to say nothing major. But, you know, I, I guess getting back out into the world is major for each of us as we check mm-hmm. these little moments off our list of returning to normalcy. And speaking of returning to normalcy... Yes. Um, you, we've been sort of spreading the news around on our social media and, um, on our site. Uh, and I think we may have mentioned it on our, on this podcast a couple of times, but we actually have book tour dates, um, and appearances lined up for this month because June is pride month Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, this podcast is going to be pride themed today. But first I wanted to talk a bit about the, uh, uh, when we wrote this book, we hoped that it would be evergreen. We hoped that it not only would um, be sell for as long as RuPaul's Drag Race was on the air, which looks like that's not ending anytime soon, but also would be a book that could be referred to for years after the show went off the air. It's mm-hmm. basically Queer Cultural History 101 with right. a f- focus on drag queens. Um, it is meant to serve as an introduction to queer cultural history and then send the reader off. Uh, to go look for further, um, you know, materials if they want. Um, so our hope was when we wrote the book that it would not just be, you know, on the shelves for the, the one season of Drag Race post-book release and then it would sort of fade away. And that hasn't happened. It, thank God, it hasn't happened. No,
1: we've, we've, we've received many emails of people saying they're using the book for any, for like courses, you know, for education, for for their classes, for everything. So we really appreciate that. Yeah,
0: and it's selling, you know, uh, um, continuously. Like the sales continue to pick. They picked up again at Christmas this past year, and now they're picking up for the book's second Pride Uh, in a row because it was already out last year for pride anyway um we will so there's some fun stuff coming up we will be uh doing some social media stuff for the penguin uh book account which has a huge following instagram account uh yeah and um so you'll be you'll be seeing us over there we are doing two live appearances and one virtual appearance this month um so far so well i mean it's june i don't (laughs) think we can plan much i know but maybe
1: july we'll have some more
0: um, well I think considering that we're still half in lockdown uh, it's great that we got these dates I think next June we sh- will probably push to have like you know more dates as as many as we can because we will never stop talking about this book part of today's podcast because we're it's driven by the fact that today uh, that it's pride and we we will now always be devoted to pride related content during the month of June because we are uh, LGBTQ authors who wrote a book on it you know so it's i think every June we're you're going to see us doing more pride related work on our site right. in our newsletter and on this podcast but also for purely cynical reasons we need to get back in the habit of talking about our book talking about these topics extemporaneously because we're about to do it right uh so this is a little practice run it's but here's the thing all right here are the dates so because we really need people to come out we um we're very excited to have these dates we've never had a problem pulling a decent crowd to come out and see us but we are 15 months of pandemic right. lockdown so we're nervous <laughs> i will fully admit excited this i'm like but nervous. excited but i'm like i hope people show up up, I really yeah. really do. So do your best. Do up. your best, but let's start with the um first appearance which is a virtual one. It's ticketed, which means you have to sign up for it, but you don't have to pay for anything. Um and it's with the uh the History Project documenting LGBTQ Boston. Uh, they invited us a couple months ago to come. They have a whole on a series of online interviews and talks, and they asked us if we would come on for June. We will be on Thursday, June 24th, from uh, starting at 7 p.m. It's a Zoom thing. You don't have to make your—you know, you can turn your camera off and just listen to us. There will be a and a and a discussion of the book, um, and we're very excited about that. Right. Uh, it, it actually has been a while since we've done a Zoom book-related event. We were doing a— f- flood of them in 2020 but this is the first time we're doing it uh i believe this year um and then on the 26th uh of june which is a saturday at 4 p.m we will be doing a signing and uh QA and a talk in washington dc Yay! uh so that's washington dc 4 p.m. at a fabulous hotel. I'm not. I don't have the details. I mean, I have the details, but I'm waiting for our publicist to release these mm-hmm. official like press stuff and everything, which we will have on our site. But that is the date and the place and the time. June 26th, 4 p.m. DC, gorgeous hotel, right in the middle of DC. Um. Uh. So please, if you're in that area, or if you're a train ride or a car ride away, please come out and see us. We'd love We'd to. Love see you, to. Yeah. Uh, and we had a wonderful time
1: last time we did a um, book We've signing. We've always had a NDC. great reception. Yeah, the yeah. is amazing. Yeah.
0: So and we love that town. It's we it's where we went on our honeymoon. So please come out for us the twenty sixth at four PM. We'll we'll have the full details on our site probably before the end of today. And then, following that, on June thirtieth, which is a Wednesday, we will be at the Clark County Library in Las Vegas, Nevada, at seven p.m. Our first time in Vegas. I know, very excited. And uh, it was funny because the people at the Clark County Library were very gracious to send us hotel information and stuff. And I guess they figured we wanted to be on a budget. And and I said to Lorenzo, no, no. I've never been to Vegas, I don't know when I'm coming back to Vegas, but we are staying on the Strip, yes. and I want a room facing the Strip, and I want the full Vegas experience, so he, you know, Lorenzo used to work for a travel agent back when they were such a thing, well, actually he used to work for an airline. hmm uh, I actually
1: work for a hotel. The whole you did
0: the whole hospitality, yeah, hospitality tourism thing. thing. Yes. So whenever we have to anything to take care of on that front, I just say Lorenzo, get us a fabulous room, and he did. Uh, we're staying at the Bellagio, and that's going to be really exciting. It'd so be fun. June thirtieth, seven p.m. Clark County Library, Las Vegas. Have never been to Vegas. Don't know if there's a follow. Like, do, <laughs> are there people in Vegas who read us? I need to know. Oh, Shout no. out. Yeah. I know over the years when we've sent when we've had mailing lists for our book promo, you know, sending out cards. And stuff. Every once in a while, a Las Vegas address came up. So I know there's a few of you out there. Um, we're very excited. Yes. So that's June 24th is a virtual talk. June 26th, we're going to be in D.C. And mm-hmm. June 30th, we are going to be in Las Vegas, can't Nevada. Wait. Very, very excited. Um, so, and let's just mention the book in case anyone listening has never heard of it. I can't believe that would be true. It's Legendary Children, the First Decade of RuPaul's Drag Race in the Last Century of Queer Life. Uh, It's my favorite thing I've ever done in my life, except marry my husband. I know, right? Um, So we are actually going to return to the book, uh, and hopefully not in a super promotional way, but in a a queer author sort of way. Uh, If you are um, subscribing or following our newsletter, Twirling Through It... Please do subscribe. That helps an awful lot um, in helping us generate, right. you know, a readership and a content in a direction. As we mentioned, for before, the newsletter. the
1: newsletter, is a way uh, gives us an opportunity to to kind of like explore other topics or or extend a little more our conversation uh, right. on other topics that we don't cover on the site, or sometimes we mention. Uh, very briefly on, on Twitter and then we want to expand a little more. So that's what the new newsletters are for
0: um, it, it actually works out really well for us I was resistant to it for a long time But I think it does work for us because it allows our site to be specifically one thing right one but it allows us as a as a brand as writers Uh, as commenters, to have a broader platform. Like I I, I mean, we could write about social and cultural and LGBTQ stuff more in-depth on our own site, but then you're sort of diluting the brand uh, of the site. It's best that Tom and Lorenzo be a place for pop culture, for costume design, for fashion and red carpet. I agree. Um, And then our newsletter, and sometimes this podcast, is a place where we can go and discuss other topics in more depth and, uh, you know, just be the broad cultural commenters we've always sort of hoped we would be. So if you haven't... Yes, twirling through it. It's on Substack. You can uh, yeah, actually you go to com and, and click on newsletter. It'll take you straight to it. Subscribing is free. You are not obligated yeah. to do anything.
1: It's it's an but, email in your inbox Yeah, That's, it, it's
0: you're getting undiluted Tilo in your inbox and you can read us whenever. There's no ads involved. That's another big reason to uh, you know, to get check it out is because it's an ad-free experience. Um Anyway, so this week's, you know, the, the newsletter for this past week uh, had to do with pride, had to do with um, an, our own history with pride. And it was spurred on by a discussion that's going on right now in, in the discourse, uh, largely fueled by online stuff. Um, as usual. <laughs> as per the usual, all of the discourse starts online now. Um Having to do with the idea of kink at pride and sexual display at pride. And there are people who are both within and without the LGBTQIA community who are suggesting that um, pride events, parades and such, should not have any sort of sexual display, should not be showing excessive amounts of skin, and certainly shouldn't be uh, displaying any um, fetish behavior, fetish-based behavior. Um uh, and, you know, I, I guess when you put it a certain way, it sounds somewhat reasonable. Like, yes, you know, we shouldn't be having sex in the street and so on and so forth. Um, two things about that. Number one, I've been, I've been to 25 different Pride events in my life at various cities in this country. And I have yet to see anybody actually having sex at Pride. Like, And I have yet to actually see, like, full nudity at Pride. Right. Um, you see people in leather gear and and guys in speedos, and you'll see uh, women with their tops off. But you know what? You see that at carnival and you see that at Mardi Gras. Mm-hmm. Um, and while there is uh, a huge uh, fetish component that has always marched in the in most pride parades, every at least large urban ones, you'll have the leather community, both the lesbian and the uh, gay male leather communities marching. Um, and there are other forms of uh, fetish expression that you'll see at at um, various pride events. But uh, I take issue with the idea that pride is some sort of bacchanal of sex, some mm-hmm. sort of public orgy of sex. There are events like the Folsom Street Fair in San Francisco, uh, which is not a pride event, by the way, but... Um, but that is a, a place where there is open... Um, activities. Activities. It's also a roped-off sort of thing. It's not like they're marching down the street, and it is not pride. Um, that is an event specifically for the leather community, the international leather community. They all go there, right? and they act out their fantasies in the street, because that's San Francisco. Uh, but Pride, <laughs> across the nation, and I've been to New York's Pride a, a dozen times right. in my life, and it's sexy as hell, but no one's having sex in the street in uh, right. in during your average Pride events. You are seeing sexual display. You are seeing nudity and bodily displays and expression of sexuality. Um, and we're going to talk about why we think that's a unnecessary okay. ne- component, but we're also going to talk, we're tying it into our book because we're slick that way, uh, into some of the themes and and people that we talked about in our book. Um, I think I've outlined why there is sex and sexual display at Pride with everything I just said. But when you look at the history of our people, the mm-hmm. LGBTQ community, um, uh, there's, that's the argument for why Pride should be a sexual event. And I don't mean a... That's not even putting it correctly. An event with sexual uh, uh, display. It's not an event that's about sex, but the queer community, the gay community and the trans community specifically, and the bi community, are communities that have uh, formed around either sexual or gender Mm -hmm. identity issues. Uh, Not issues, but sexual or gender identity. So when that is how you define your community and you come together under that umbrella, then yes, there are going to be extreme displays of You know, sexuality and extreme displays of gender, which is why we have drag queens and muscle boys parading together on floats. It's why you have the pit crew as an essential part of RuPaul's Drag Race, because skimpy muscle boys, I mean, muscle boys in skimpy outfits uh, has a a tradition that literally goes back a century Um, standing alongside. Uh, uh, drag queens performing on stage. Right. Um, part of that was sexual. Part of that had to do with gender identity. And that's literally why, I mean, when you see some muscle Mary in a jockstrap dancing next to a drag queen on a pride float, you are seeing largely the entire history of, uh, the LGBTQ community culturally playing out. You are seeing trans expression because, uh, drag, drag is not, trans, but it is an art form that was created by trans women in order to be able to express themselves. And you're seeing the extreme sexual expression of men, uh, men who are attracted to other men. You're seeing the, uh, uh, you know, the extreme end of that where it's these men with these incredibly pumped up, usually shaved bodies, oiled up and in tiny little, you know, it's, it's an exaggeration the same way you would see sexual exaggeration in Mardi Gras or in Carnival. Anyway, Exactly. I mean, there,
1: there's there's always an explanation why things are the way they are. I mean, the reason why you see all these m- muscled men, it's because it, it, it goes back to the AIDS time when people were uh, mocked, made fun of, or, or criticized because they were thin, because they were dying of AIDS. And, and so that look of dying thin men. Uh, was always associated with disease, with with AIDS. So the community started working out more to stay away from that image. And so there's always a, a
0: little bit of I would of say history. it even predates that, though. I mean, there was always no, 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 a, a yes, damn obsession. Yes. Well,
1: then, yeah, we'll get to the part where it's tied up to physique models and all that stuff. But, but AIDS is when it exploded right. in the last What I'm trying years. to say is that there's always a quote-unquote explanation there's always a reason why you see certain things going down the parade because they
0: they right
1: somehow they're 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 telling a little bit of the story they our, are our story
0: our history that's part of what that's a lot of what our book is based on is the idea is you can look at anything like you can look at anything on drag race you can look at anything in a pride parade and you can trace back the parts of our history that explain mm-hmm. why we do that sort of thing or why drag race has that sort of thing uh, you mentioned physique models. I just want to get into the idea of sex. Uh, I really wanted this this topic because we are gay men, and mm-hmm. this is uh, if there's one area of expertise in our life, it's it's being gay men. So we're we're focusing on the sexual aspect of pride. There is another aspect of pride that of you know. Of this discussion about propriety at Pride, which has to do with whether we should have drag queens or open, Mm -hmm. you know, that and that's a completely, you know, it's all under the same umbrella of um, people arguing for this sort of assimilationist stance instead of a liberation stance. And we've been having this fight. It actually predates Pride. We've been having this fight since the Mattachine Society in the 1950s. This idea that do we gain equality by being ourselves, or we do we gain equality by assimilating into "quote unquote" straight culture and try and there you know there's an argument that the reason why and actually we, we sort of alluded to this in the book, the reason why the last 20 years of gay rights um, focus has been on very conservative. Uh, institutions like marriage and military service and the ability to raise and adopt children. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, these were, and we have benefited from these these fights and winning these fights, and they were necessary fights, but they were, again, in some ways a response to the AIDS crisis, they were a shift that cis gays made towards um, assimilationalist po- policies. Right. Right. Um, and what happens is, I mean, they were, and they were the greatest victories of the queer rights movement so far. Marriage, marriage rights is, I don't even think people understand what a big deal it is that the, we sort of took it all for granted. It's but this 50 idea. years from now, they're, they're going to write the history of this. And, and this was, this was a major moment in, right in history. Um.
1: Uh, assimilation is a fantastic thing, but there is there's also this idea that if you assimilate, then you have to get rid of of whatever you had so far. Yeah, I don't or think assimilation
0: is this fantastic.
1: No, I mean fantastic in the sense that you're part of a, a larger group, and that's a good thing. Maybe "fantastic" not a good word, but it's it's a good thing for for it's many. It's tempting. Yes, for many. Right. Um, but there is also this idea that well, now you're married, you have kids, then you know you shouldn't be doing other things that are part of other communities uh
0: yeah not everyone's married not everyone has kids and even if they were that doesn't matter like people who have kids or people who have married they can get into kink if they want to. so you do see that come
1: up again every you know every now and then this idea that well maybe we shouldn't be doing these things Uh, maybe we shouldn't be so open about our sexuality when we now have kids on the parade that type of thing
0: and um this is you know this has always been a somewhat tiresome discussion, but the fact is, it is different now in the 21st century because we do have children at Pride, which was something we didn't have. Um, as you know, in any great numbers uh, until the last twenty to twenty-five years or so, but um, queer politics moved towards a family-oriented uh, version vision of ourselves. In order mm-hmm. to secure these legislative wins, we had to sell ourselves as you know we're your preacher, we're your teacher, we're we're the couple next door raising kids, we're normal,
1: we're normal, yeah, yeah.
0: That's what we had to sell. And um, like I said, the, the rights that we've won in the last 15 years are historic. They're, and, and s- shift society shifting, paradigm shifting. We haven't really gotten to the effects of what it will, you know, once we're several generations, let's say, into mm-hmm. uh, same-sex marriage, I think that's when you'll see how it has changed society. Um, but the downside to that is that, um, it left all of the people in the queer community who have no interest in getting married, or perhaps just, it's not an opportunity for them and who certainly have no interest in raising children or serving in the military. It left those people and some of whom are virulently opposed to those things, like opposed to being in the military, opposed to us having children, opposed to us getting married. And these are legitimate stances like I am all I am happily married to my man and there we have received all the legal benefits that come with that and I'm grateful for that but I fully support any queer who feels like no no the point to my existence is freedom sexuality Mm -hmm. um, you know enjoying partners and that sort of thing I, I fully support that we actually tried to make that point clear in our book as well that even though we're coming from from that sort of, I would never call myself an assimilationist assimilationalist in my political stance, but we have benefited from assimilationist right. policies. Uh, even though that's true, I firmly believe in queer liberation in the idea that we need to be free mm-hmm. to be queer in whatever way that is, um, and. Typically, historically, our queerness, whether that's trans queerness or sexual queerness, sexual orientation queerness, uh, whether that's asexuality even, um, it has been expressed, well, not asexuality, that's actually different, actually, some of this is being driven by, um, you know, this asexual point of view, I don't think all asexuals or even most think this way, but you see a lot of rhetoric online that now that we have included, you know, intersex and asexual people in the queer umbrella and I fully welcome them. um, But some people are arguing, you know, that it's, they have not given consent to see a boob or to see an ass crack and that this is somehow, it's very fucking complicated, but we are, our queerness, uh, 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 intersex and asexual, well, especially asexual people aside, Uh, Our queerness has been defined largely by our gender and sexual expression over the years. And our culture, this is what I wanted to get into, how we have, uh, uh, what we look at as queer culture. Drag Race being the first example with the pit crew. Our our culture is full of these references. Mm -hmm. I just want to quickly talk about, and the book does, The village people is a perfect example of queer sexual archetypes that were pushed out into an unsuspecting mainstream, many of whom (laughs) still do not understand Understand, that these are all based on pornography archetypes, gay (laughs) pornography archetypes, the soldier, the cop, the leather guy, the sailor. Um,
1: Native American, remember?
0: Exactly, Native American. And uh, this all arose out of, not you know, there wasn't, much chance for photographic or filmed hardcore gay pornography. I mean it existed, don't get me wrong, in the underground, but it was there was no distribu- you know, legal distribution system for it. So a lot of early erotic uh exposure to que- queer men had to, you know, er- homoeroticism or ho- gay pornographic artwork was through artwork, was through painted or sketched artwork that was sent out uh, usually under the guise of Physique magazines. And there's an artist we um, profile in the book, George Quaintance, who had an obsession with... Native Americans and Aztecs and Mexican Indian, you know, Mexican indigenous people. And he would paint these fantastical scenes of like at naked Aztec gods with bodybuilder body, you know, that sort of thing. (laughs) And that became uh, a sexual archetype for mid century gay men. I don't think I have to explain the construction worker or the leather guy or the cop. (laughs) However, I will say those archetypes also arose out of the artwork of George Quaintance and then were heavily, 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 uh, codified in the artwork of the man we know as Tom of Finland, who was also profiled in the book, huge archetypal figure in how queer men, mm-hmm. how they see sex, how they see masculinity, how they see themselves. Uh, some, the thing with the Tom of Finland archetype, which was um, he had less of an interest in cowboys because he was actually Finnish. Although the uh, George Quaintance had a lot of cowboys in his artwork because he was American, but Tom um, of Finland had a huge fascination with military uniforms, and there is a certain sort of fascistic undertone to some of his work. Uh, and that spilled over into his uh, fascination with leather and fetish gear. He had a huge fascination with lumberjack tights. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I mean, queer male socializing spaces change over time and shift over time, and things go in and out of style. But to this day in your average queer male socializing space, you will see some version of those same archetypes playing mm-hmm. out in the clothes that the men are wearing. Right. It is tight tank tops. It is tight plaid shirts. It's tight jeans. It's black boots. It's black leather jackets. The, that look, no matter what, has never gone out of style in queer male, male socializing circles. Um, and that is um, all born out of this is a a fashion. Inspiration, a social inspiration, and a sexual inspiration all arising out of that artwork. And this is what I mean. And you can go, not every gay male bar, but my God, um, f- for a, at least 50 years, I would say 75% of the gay male bars in the world had Tama Finland artwork, either in the bathroom right. or hanging on a wall somewhere. somewhere it's yeah. just, I can't, it is not like even comparing him to someone like Norman Rockwell doesn't get across the, the power of his work and how much it influenced gay social life and gay sex. Like it, it, and the, I'm trying to get the point across here that our culture, our social life, and our sexuality has always been intertwined in these ways, in ways that you cannot separate uh, when you have a, a social movement, a social um, event like Pride. Now, I want Lorenzo to talk for a little bit. I'm very excited about this because I want Lorenzo to talk about a man that we also profiled in the book, but we've never talked about in the promotion. We've done a lot of... Right.
1: When we when we do the book tours and book signing and so on, we tend to focus on just the, just the people on the cover. I mean, but there are so many other people right. we mentioned in the book that we didn't have space enough to expand you know, a but little more.
0: This person is a perfect, um, uh, example, or a perfect, uh, example of, um, uh, a gay man whose sexuality drove his entire, whose sexual desires drove his entire life, but personally, professionally, and artistically. And in doing so, he created a cultural phenomenon that still exists today, mm-hmm. which is the Physique magazine. Uh, Lorenzo, um, of everything that I, I've written about in the book and, and the years of uh, research I've done into queer history, this is one area where Lorenzo outstrips me completely because he is fascinated by the history of physique magazines. And I want you to talk about the mm-hmm. father of physique magazines, yeah, Bob Miser. Bob Miser. Tell uh, people about Bob. It
1: is a topic that I love. First, because I I love, uh, I don't know, I, I like weight lifting I like working out I like all that stuff and I do like the history of, of, of physique magazines and, and physique models in general. Um, I mean men have been photographed naked you know for for, for as long as
0: they've been cameras
1: yeah exactly so it's nothing new that that part is not new but the the idea that this man Bob Miser, had the idea of create a magazine or or you can call it a catalog too uh, with pretty much naked men almost naked men.
0: Um Okay, so what's the date we're talking about here?
1: Um well here's the thing. He Bob Miser was always interested in 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 photography. So he started photographing people like early, uh mid forties, late forties, he, he started photographing people just you know, because he liked uh to take pictures of, of men in general. And it's very interesting. The the idea was um uh, he would walk around the city. I mean, he he's from um Idaho, but he, his family moved to LA. Um, so he would walk around L.A. Uh, and, and then stop men, uh, soldiers or whoever was coming to town uh, because, you know, everyone wanted to be an actor. So all these young men, he would invite them to come back to his place uh, and photograph them. Now, it was just basically to photograph them. And, and then he developed this habit of photographing them. And, and then, then he had the, the idea of selling these photographs
0: Um, Now, naked pictures of men were completely illegal at this time, Um, and... He was trying to get around that with, you know, like draping things across them. There was most of these pictures were not full frontal because no. it was illegal. It would be illegal to mail them or sell them.
1: Well, first he had the idea of taking these pictures so that he would sell them to agents, to artists, people who needed some sort of reference, uh, body
0: reference, to do some some sort of work. That's why they're called physique models. That's as why if they were. It was model. some artistic, and he's founded the AMG, which was the artist model, artistic. Models Guild,
1: Athletic Model Athletic uh, you know, Models Guild. So he created this company. So he photographed these men. But the thing is that these men wouldn't stay long in town. Uh, they didn't want to give their real name or real phone number. So he had no way of contacting them uh, to tell them that hey, you know, I got some work for you. So he had all these pictures, and then he kept sending these pictures out. And people were more interested in the pictures than actually hiring the models. So you know, so-called models. Um, so. One day he decided to, you know, put all these uh, pictures together and staple them together. And then the idea of of creating a magazine, um, he had the idea of creating a magazine or a catalog and and pretty much send these in the mail uh, so people could pick the pictures because he realized that people were more interested in pictures. So he started selling pictures. And that's how the whole company, the whole magazine started. Um, And the main thing about this is that what's the name? I mean, the magazine is called, the magazine is called Physique Pictorio, uh, the magazine that he created. Now, he wasn't the only photographer at the time. Um, He was pretty much the one who had the idea of creating the magazine and and selling these pictures and creating a business and creating a community, community. and I'll talk about the community in a minute. But at the time, other photographers were also taking pictures in different parts of the country. Like you have Bruce of Los Angeles, uh, but Bruce Bella's, it's from um, where it's from. I forgot. Um, Idaho. And then you you had all the photographers. You had people in New York. You had Dave Martin. You had uh, Don Whitman uh, from Denver. You had all these photographers all over the country taking these pictures, kind of similar pictures, and selling them. And then what they would they would do is they would sell them sell them privately. They would go to a hotel room and and meet the the buyer and sell these these pictures one by one, like selling individual pictures. That's how it worked at the time. Because I mean. You couldn't sell them right. uh, publicly. Um, so Bob might had had the idea of creating the magazine, and and then it took off. People started subscribing Which he to would, this magazine. He
0: would mail out. It was not sold yes. on newsstands.
1: No, it was a magazine that he would send to people who uh, subscribed to you know part of the list uh, of, of subscribers. And and this is very interesting because you have to understand that at the time, uh, the post office uh, would pretty much not allow anyone to send anything that they consider uh, obscene or or inappropriate. Uh, They had some Comstock Act, uh, some law, federal law, that they pretty much used to go against anybody sending anything in the mail. And it was pretty serious. They would go after the photographers sending those magazines, like Bob Miser, for example. But they would also go after the people subscribing to those lists. There are cases, there are interviews. I read a bunch of stuff. People who actually end up going to the um, the, talk to the FBI, talk to a lot of people like people who just bought the magazine um, because they were not allowed to receive that type of material through the mail, through the post office. So that's why the magazines are so small. The first thing I noticed when I started collecting them, the magazines were very small.
0: They're like pamphlets.
1: Yes, they're like small, because that's that was the way to kind of like send them in the mail and, the, you know, wouldn't alert the post office that that's actually a magazine. So they're like very tiny, which is very funny. Um, so he created this, and, and by creating this magazine and selling these magazines and pictures, he created a community. That's the most important part of it, because... I also read a bunch of interview with people who bought the magazine at the time and we talking he created the magazine in 1951 we're talking about 50s
0: here um it's very illegal to be gay it's illegal very to illegal anything. to have any sort of same-sex right. attraction any expression like that gay bars were illegal and when I say illegal men went to jail and a lot of men went to were put in mental institutions it was no freaking right. joke I mean and Bob miser, Uh, Part of the reason he's singled out in our book and singled out in this discussion is because he also spent his life fighting the law over right. and over and over again to get the law changed.
1: Right. He wasn't just a photographer, he was also an activist and he went to jail. He was actually convicted in 1954 for for sending these magazines. He he was convicted convicted like 3 times. Um and the all the other, all the photographers that I mentioned, they were also convicted but and and that kind of stopped them from sending magazines or even because <clears throat> Excuse me, when Bob Miser created the magazine, he invited all these other photographers to be part of the magazine and because of the pressure of the post office and the law, all these photographers decided not to be involved with Bob Miser anymore, but Bob Miser kept going. He kept publishing the magazine and um, didn't care and the magazine is it, it was very important because it created this community. I read interview with people interviews with people who bought the magazine at the time saying that the magazine pretty much gave showed them that there were on, they weren't the only person gay in the world that's, that's and and that's such a silly thing to say today but back then we didn't have internet we didn't have anything we there didn't were, have
0: pornography we, we didn't, didn't have...
1: have anything at all so if you were gay you question if you were i mean i i read so many and watched so many interviews with people say i thought i was the only one with this problem and and by finding this magazine you realize that there are more people out there uh, going through the same thing you're going. So he kind of created this community because he also had like a letter section. Um,
0: so that men could write in so men and reach out in, to each other. Yes,
1: and then talk about
0: their they experience. They become pen pals. And- yes,
1: yes. So he had this, you know, system going on where people, gay men in the whole country would communicate and exchange ideas and letters and so on. So that's how pretty much the whole thing started in terms of like the gay community and this understanding that you're not the only person gay or with those desires, uh, in, in the country, in
0: the world. That's, um, yes. And that is a prime example. That's it right there. That is a reason why, uh, as a community, our, our sexual uh, commonality or our attractions are part and parcel of that community. You can't remove that. And when we're together as a group, you can't. Um, it's it's just wrong for any member of our group to ask other members of our group not to express their sexual freedom, their sexual uh, selves, in that setting, uh, because people like Bob Marser, Bob Miser spent his life not only. Creating that work, which on its own, you might think, okay, so we took pictures of, you know, homoerotic pictures of guys. That doesn't seem like much. But he had to do, he he did it for 50 years. He had, he was constantly fighting the law in order to do so. And um, he literally helped create a community of men mm-hmm. who were able to reach out to each other at a time when socializing and gathering was not that easy for gay men. Um, and it, uh, it gave them, I don't think you can... Um. Yeah, I don't think I can possibly convey what it's like for a gay person to see gay erotica for the first time. And usually we're very young when we see it, the, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I was actually like 13 the first time I saw gay porn. Um, But it's this idea like, oh, there. it's not just me. Mm-hmm. It's not just me. This is why porn... Uh, has such a, a a strong history. Like gay porn, look, it's not as common as it used to be, but pride parades always had porn stars in them. Always, mm-hmm. always, always, always. And I know a lot of them still do. Um, but that's a sen- that is essential. Whether, um, oh, I bumped into my mic there. I don't know if that made any noise, but I'm sorry if it did. Um, that's just an essential part of our identity, and it's an essential part of our history. Like I said, when you go to... Um, Uh, through our history and you look at the uh, in the 50s and the 60s before stonewall when people were when other riots happened like the compton's cafeteria riots or the cooper's donuts showdown um which we wrote about in our book it's all um sex workers they were the first people to throw rocks at the cops and break windows and say stop you know leave us alone because um in the 1940s and the 1950s, the most visible members of the queer community tended to be sex workers, uh, tended to be trans women right. who were sex workers or f- uh, femme gay men or uh, butch gay men. People who, who were easily uh, pe-
1: identified and, and, you know, you, you had to the-
0: wear your gayness on your sleeve, your queerness right. on your sleeve in order to make a living. And, you know, a lot of queer people, very feminine gay men, very butch gay women, very um, uh, and trans trans people had it. Found it very difficult to find work, right? Uh, and so many of them had to turn to prostitution, and they were the ones that got fed up with the cops first. And they were the ones who were hanging out in these spaces in the middle of the night, trying to find a safe spot off the street, which is what the Compton's Cafeteria was, which is what Cooper's Donuts was. Um, and the cops would come in, and then these were the ones who started the first fires and threw the first bricks and broke the first windows. They were all sex workers. Uh, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, the legendary trans women in in uh, New York, specifically New York City's queer history, but also in the history of pride. um, They both uh, protected their trans sisters and formed a group, um, the Street Transvestites Action Revolutionaries star that they supported through sex work. They actually housed trans women. Um, in a in a safe space by turning tricks and mm-hmm. making enough money so that they could pay rent, so that these pl- people, these women, had a place to go. You cannot separate sex and mm-hmm. sexual display not only from our gay lives, from our queer lives, but you cannot separate it from our history. And Pride is the one place above all others where our history matters the most. You mm. cannot remove our history from Pride because. Pride is about our history.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, going back to Bob Meiser and the magazine, this is what kind of united us. The homoerotic photos and magazines, that's what united us in a way. And um, that's how we sort of like found other people uh, like us. And we created a community. Uh, You have to remember, I mean, it's very hard to see these things, but you have to remember at the time, the post office actually had a stamp. They would stamp every envelope encouraging people to uh, report any mail that they thought was not appropriate. Anybody. Right. I mean, so all your neighbors could look at your mail and say, uh, I think that guy's receiving <laughs> right. some physique model magazine right now. And they would go after the person, after the photographer, after the creator of the magazine. So Bob Meiser saw all that, but he still kept going and publishing the magazine and, you know, doing his best to keep the community
0: going on uh the bob miser foundation still exists well the, yes his company still exists bob miser down da- uh died in like 1992 but um the the bob miser foundation exists to this day and it's not just um s- you know uh, archiving and making available his work i think he's he shot over a million pictures over his career he was of obsessed men with taking pictures, he yeah. shot arnold schwarzenegger yes. when he was a bodybuilder. Yes. Uh, but the Bob Meiser Foundation, you can still find it. They're out there. It's also an educational foundation that talks about uh, the history of physique culture. Oh, and that's the other thing—not uh, for nothing. But Bob Miser's work, physique Pictorial, and those magazines also created the, the bodybuilding industry as we know it today, because we wouldn't. Ha- they were the precursor to all those bodybuilding magazines now, including men uh, like Men's Fitness and those mainstream magazines. Mm-hmm. But. Um, Uh, All of those, a lot of those models moved over into professional bodybuilding. A lot of his photographers moved over into shooting those things. And uh, there was a lot of overlap in the early years. There still is. There was a lot of overlap in the early years between, you know, gay male sexual fetishes and the bodybuilding community. Uh, So all of those Iron Man magazines and weightlifting magazines, all of that stuff is owes some debt to Bob Miser and his queer sexual fantasies. Right.
1: Now, bodybuilding magazines existed uh, way before Bob Miser. In fact, Bob Miser started selling his pictures to those magazines like Mr. America. You mentioned Iron Man. Uh, Your physique. There's so many of them at the time. But the problem is, the thing is that they were very very strict to uh greek poses you know they were they they had this very basic idea of how to photograph the the bodybuilders it was bob Meiser who introduced the idea of taking pictures in a more casual way by the pole, uh make the models look at the camera the bodybuilders look at the camera and smile so that what changed the whole industry and why gay men who used to buy those bodybuilder magazines at the time uh, kind of like shifted to Bob Meiser type of magazine and then creating the community that we just talked about.
0: So a very influential figure, both in the queer community and in the mainstream community, which is, again, uh, one of the themes of our book, is to show how queer cultural history intersects with mainstream culture all the time and how the influence... Queer people have on mainstream culture. Bob Mizer is a prime example of that, um, and also a prime example of why why Pride has to remain sexy mm-hmm. uh, and even a little kinky. Because uh, that's e- our history. It's our history. Uh, uh, even if that's not who you are as a queer person, um, that is part a huge part of queer cultural and social history, and it should never not be acknowledged during Pride. I agree. So. Mm -hmm. I think that is it for today. Our little visit back to our book and to uh, one of my favorite topics to talk about, which is queer history. So uh, let us know what you think. We're going to include, I think you should take some pictures of your uh, collection of physique books. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Why not? (laughs) Maybe. Uh, And include them in the post today on our site for this. And uh, like I said, please subscribe to, well, subscribe to this podcast, but also subscribe to our newsletter, Twirling Through It. Uh, Let us know what you think of everything we talked about today. We will be back next week with whatever passes our eyes or desks. So until then, take care of yourselves. Love you. Mean it. Bye-bye. Bye.